Hello, thank you so much for choosing to listen to Speaking Queerly. Just as a bit of a warning, this week we will discuss topics that do touch on suicide, so listeners' discretion is advised. Speaking Queerly Welcome to Speaking Queerly. My name is Madam Jo Mama, Dumfries and Galloway's burly bearded beauty, and you are listening to Dumfries' one and only LGBTQIA plus podcast. As always, I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Rudy Finsmith. Hiya, gorgeous. Hello, Joe. How are you tonight? Stunning. Uh, how are you? Same. Very, very same. And very happy to be with you and our special guest, DJ McDowell, for LGBTQ plus history month. Yay! Yay! Hi, DJ. Hi, my darlings. Thank you so much Lift for Lift that me microphone in. to your All face. All right, baby. I'm not used to putting <laughs> things like that in my face. Well... <laughs> Neither am I. I am a saint. Uh, welcome to Speaking Queerly. Thank you. Your first time. Indeed. We've been trying. We tried to get you when we were on the radio, but you it did. didn't work out, and we that's did. okay. We've got you now. You have. I'm probably in a much better place, to be fair. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not wouldn't to be fair. We interviewed you at Eden Festival. Yes, you did. We absolutely did. You did. That was a fun interview. We enjoyed that. Um, and you're with us today to talk. A little bit about queer history here in our wonderful county, Dumfries yes. and Galloway. Um, but before we get into all that, tell the people a little bit about yourself. I know. Oh, I'm allowed to share. You are. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we encourage sharing on this show. Okay, DJ McDowell, uh, she, they. Um, I am born and bred at Dunhamer. The McDowells are also the Galloway clan, so I feel a very, very strong draw to everything that lies in these lands. I've, uh, I initially, after leaving Dumfries Academy, went away, did photography at art college. Got, that got me into looking at the narratives of people's stories and them telling their own stories through photography, then got into youth work, um, got involved in the Youth Inquiry Service way back in 1995. Um, Is that how long you did it? That's how long I did it, baby. My goodness. Yes, I remember Joe from the golden days of being <laughs> a tiny little baby burly. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so from 95, I started the youth work, started doing work and saved at the Oasis. I don't know how many times, because everybody wanted it shut down. <laughs> um, but we proved that there was a ton of creativity in the region, a ton of sort of different ways that the youth work had not been provided. Did that, so I worked on the inside of the council and run different youth work services for like 20 years. Yeah. Left, set up my own business, own kick, and uh, now I'm a freelance consultant doing all sorts of community development work, and I'm specialising in heritage engagement and working in all sorts of amazing different projects. I am a very privileged soul. You certainly are, and we are certainly privileged to have you with us today. Um, so we found out a little bit about you, but oh. before we go oh. any further, Rudy, <laughs> tell the people a little bit about where they can find us. You can find us in all the usual places online. You can find us on social media under Speaking Queerly with Madam Joe and Rudy on Facebook or on Instagram and threads at speaking.queerly. Can you tell he's done that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> can you tell he's sticky it? <laughs> well, listen, all lots to look forward to when we come back after this quick break. Welcome back to Speaking Queerly. We are joined in studio tonight with DJ McDowell, who is 
just a legend, really. Uh, <laughs> um, among other things, uh, a heritage expert locally. Um, we have spoken on the show in the past about DJ's project, uh, introducing the story of Flora Murray. Um, so a, a fantastic, hitherto unknown story um, about a local queer person. DJ, can you tell us a little bit more about the project? Sure. So it, like, it grew out of a project that I was working on called Story Trails. Um, which was about uncovering some hidden, local hidden histories. I went on a tack that was uh, about trying to get some women's stories and it was about using augmented reality. To, so to put those stories back into the spaces and the places that they should have been present in but are currently vacant from. Um, so re-inhabiting that space. And one of the people that came up while I was doing the research was a Dr. Flora Murray. And I so wish I could remember the person that dropped that name into my life because on that very second, everything changed. I have been, it's almost two years ago. In fact, it will be two years ago. And I have been on this incredible journey. So it, it never started as a project. It was a little gift that just opened a whole world of awesomeness up for me. So before I knew it, I had done loads of research. I realised straight away from my bedroom at home that she had been born and bred just over the hill. She was only a couple of miles away. Um, and that the only remaining artefact that, that recognised her existence in the region was a plaque in the church that was just over the back of my house as well. So me and my beloved daughter um, went to find said plaque and there started a journey that took me all the way down to Penn in Buckinghamshire um, to Flora's grave and to the inside of the London School of Economics um, which houses uh, the Women's Library in London and I got to access some of Flora's archive and her partner Louisa Garrett Anderson's archive and that then opened this whole world of we could be using this in D&G. Why have we not heard of her? It's very clear she's queer, despite the fact there's plenty of naysayers out there that have liked <laughs> to quite publicly in lots of different forums say, yeah, but women of that age, in that age were just good friends. It made economic sense. No. So there's a whole narrative there that we've been up against, but it literally took us on a journey where we... the the. It started within the Heritage Service at your library and they house the Crichton Archives within the Crichton Archives because Flora had trained as one of, like, was one of the early doctors, female doctors in the UK. And her journey had taken her to be trained during the, the, the good old days of the, the Crichton Royal Institute. So we found some of her notes there and some mention of her there. So here was the start of what is now an LGBT archive for Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and that took us to unpick the archive and find out more of her story, which eventually led us to back down to London and I got to bring physically on my lap her archive back to Scotland. It was the first time all her belongings that are left in the world were brought together and were the very first queer exhibition that was held in Dumfries Museum was in memory of Flora and her portraits and stuff with her portrait of her partner, Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson, which hung in their living room, is still on display until um, next month up in the museum. So we held, held a centenary. It was 100 years since she died last, last July. So we had a huge, big uh, memorial service up at the Crichton. And um, there's been... Uh, a couple of memorial services since on Remembrance Day, which was 
pretty powerful because it was in amongst the that kind of institutional elements of mm. a regular remembrance service in the military. Yeah. Not only were they remembering somebody um, who was the first, the highest ranking member of um, the military at that time, but also suffragette and uh, like somebody who was um, seen as a bit of a criminal, really, but also somebody who was queer was then being heralded and we have a few other things that are coming online to to mark her presence and her impact in this world and it's been very very joyful and such an honor to do that i mean it was really uh, we remarked at the time um that everything was kicking off <clears throat> the just the impact that some of those memorial events had had mm. on a much bigger scale than i think just the queer community locally i mm. mean people were talking about it and it felt like for the first time this sort of heritage aspect locally had taken on a sort of a queer flavor that we don't mm. actually get to see outside of our own yeah. kind of discussion groups and you know that was felt like a really special moment because we were still on the radio at the time and we yeah uh, we were talking about it and we sadly weren't able to attend as much as it was something we really wanted mm -hmm. to um and i remember you saying when we got <coughs> excuse me sandy clam <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we got to the radio station that day, you had said, like, it's had quite the impact. Yeah. And a lot of people are talking about it. People that aren't associated with our, you know, community here in Dumfries. It made such a big, big statement. And that's all down to you, which is incredible. Oh, it's all down to Flora and her impact. Do you know, I'm just yeah. a bit of a conduit as I am with all my work. And not that this is really work, it's all my echo guy. You know, <laughs> there's no such thing as my work in my personal life. It's just it's just a purpose. Um but that like that it took me by surprise where that went. You know, and I literally even just I, I just got a, an email two nights ago for somebody that spoke at the, the first memorial service at the Crichton, just saying how much of an impact that had had on her still. Why and we're do like you nine think months on such a big impact. People are starting to realise how much our queer history and women's history have been deliberately hidden. Yeah. And there's, there, there's an appetite there for people wanting to wake up to that and to rectify that. Um, I have to absolutely give a shout out to, to Anne and Ali at the library and to Judith up at the museum because they absolutely went out of their way to ensure that this was delivered as, as powerfully as it possibly could be, and still are, um, and to try and rectify the, the, the sort of, the omissions that have been there, you know? And I think people were, it's not just because she's queer, and like I had that quite like a, we did a National Museums of Scotland online conversation about Flora, about a year ago, it was during LGBT History Month, um, and, there was lots of people sending, like I was saying earlier, sending stuff and saying, who said that they were queer? Prove it. And mm. it's literally that thing that's like, are we asking you to prove everybody that's heterosexual in history? Yes. Right? And there was this whole thing came up and there was literally in the chat, there was like, yeah, but that made economic sense. Those, those two were very dedicated to their career. So if you were a woman at that time and you were dedicated to your medical career, you didn't have time to service your man. Mm. <laughs> so therefore it made sense that two women lived together. So this was about, like, it was a bit more of a cultural thing. And what I then started to discover, which I didn't expect was when you challenge somebody's history like that, you get people who you would think are probably the strongest allies really showing some true colours because yeah. you have challenged the foundations that their world is based on. 
that that was scary. I wasn't expecting that. And it, what I genuinely mean scary because people yeah. were reacting really quite ferociously when I was saying, no, there were scary people. We've always been here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is not how they have grown up seeing the world. It's that's, like it's been invented since Stonewall. Sorry, yeah, Ruth. absolutely. No, not at all. That's something that I mentioned. So when we were talking about, um, we were, were introducing LGBT History Month on the show last week. Um, and I was saying this about the sort of the, the face of heritage in so many different avenues, but I think in particular <laughs> relation to queer history, you know, um, the, the, the way that people have conditioned themselves to believe you need proof and everything has to be yep. provable and and you know that that's it's so disappointing because how can we prove our realities when the only records that we appear in are n- notoriety prison yep. records and yep. you know salacious accounts of the things that we yep. do after dark it's shocking yeah um, and it's really disappointing because th- th- there does feel like there's a, a whole cohort of people who are prepared to live in the dark ages yes. because they they absolutely only want to go by you know what's in the written word yeah you know and how trustworthy are those accounts yeah i i, I, I don't think absolutely. we can say for sure and i think it's so valid to point out you know we're not asking straight people to verify 100 percent that they were yep. you know oh they were 100 percent heterosexual so why do we have to yeah jump through hoops to absolutely and to, there's, there's a really interesting thing there around about sort of the categorization of history like how even things are categorised in an archive. It is based on thinking that is colonial, yeah. because that's where collecting started, and it is based on thinking that's Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And that then formulates the words and the categories that things are pigeonholed into. Do you know? And that then, obviously, queer culture would not feature into that. Do you know? But it was then that that starts to become alien. And perverse in its mm. old derivative of the word, do you know? And it's like queer culture is, is seen to be sinful, criminal, do you know? Like it, it, all of the ill, you're ill, you're perverse, yeah. do you know? Like you're not the norm. So there's a whole narrative around that that still lives for a lot of people in their heteronormative world, that that's the reality of it. So it makes sense that, and this is like one of my favourite, absolute favourite juxtapositions of the Crichton archive, if we're thinking about history, is people will think, yeah, it makes sense that written into case files up there is people having some kind of level of ECT or conversion therapy. So, yeah, of course, in the archives, there is mention of people who are having their behaviours rectified through some barbaric practice or another. But then you turn that page, Hmm. and there is a Dr Flora Murray signature. Yeah. Do you know, and you are sitting in a place that's like... So she was the... Like, the stuff that was written about her, they really valued her for who she was. And she was the first person to be put... She was put in charge of the first female house up at the Crichton. So she was quite... She was ahead of her time in what she was doing. And what she learnt here at the Crichton then went on to inform her practice when they went on to, to France and then when they came back to Endell Street to set up the first ever women's military hospitals. Um, so it was the first time that these men in World War One being treated by women that were women doctors. They all thought they were going to die. There's I've held letters where the men thought they were going to die because they were turned up and were being treated by women. And women weren't capable, which tells you the headset at the time. Never mind mm. about a queer woman. Yeah. Do you know? But what happens on that journey is like by the end of the time that they've spent in this women's hospital that is being run by suffragettes, and there's a brilliant photo of... 
um, I think Louisa's in it, Flora's in it, and then there's this, um, the, uh, I don't know what rank he is in the army, but he had been a policeman, and he tried to arrest them when they were suffragettes. <laughs> and there they were, saving his life. Yeah. Do you know? And there's all of these things that have kind of come full circle. And they had the men singing suffragette songs as part of their entertainment practice. The well-being that was being delivered and that Flora was learning at the Crichton, like when it was that holistic healthcare that it was internationally round, round for, that's what they delivered frontline during World War One, And that became like one of the biggest success stories. And that's why they were then accepted by the, the army and uh, to take an actual proper rank and being recognised and they, they wanted to take the learning from them. So they were then absolutely gone from being like these criminals, these suffragette criminals, to being heralded. And if you think about that sort of dichotomy of, like, there was a queer woman in the Crichton, and it's one of the things that I'm going to look at, did she ever have to give somebody ECT that was queer? There wouldn't have been a woman getting it, because she would have just no. been, like, it would have just been registered as hysteria. Mm. But there will be, like, absolutely be gay men that that will be written up somewhere. And it is a project, like, it, we, we have had conversations about looking further into those stories mm -hmm. um, and trying to rectify the sort of the damage that's associated with the Crichton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so fascinating and it's so amazing that you've been able to find someone from Dumfries who has changed the world forever. Yeah. You know, and it's such a shame that those records have been kept away for all this time. When it came to, to Flora and, and uh, was it Louisa? Louisa, yeah. Were they quite open about who they were at the time or was it a well-guarded secret? Well, this is interesting. <clears throat> oh, and I have to say, because I will get corrected about this. Um, she was from Dalton, just outside oh. Dumfries, not Dumfries. Ah. <laughs> from Dumfries and Galway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have to be correct about these area. things. It's, it's beautiful. Area. It had a it's lovely pottery once. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Let's not go there. But it still has the most awesome church, which was her church, with a rainbow roof, can we just say. Uh -huh. And there's a whole other set of things going on there. An absolute shout out to Dalton Parish Church community because they have absolutely embraced this story of Flora. I have never felt particularly that welcome in any Christian church. Mm. Um, and they have absolutely embraced this. And sadly, the church is at a place where it's, it's uh, looking at closure. And the community themselves said, can this not be a queer heritage centre? So that's mm. one of the things that we're, yeah. It's a really interesting yeah. detoxification totally. of that space as well. Like That's yeah. really curious. So there's there's conversations started about that. We don't know where that will go. or And obviously it's fine to acquire a space like that. It's the ongoing nature of it. So the Dr. Flora Murray Appreciation Society that we just, Tracy and I decided that we had to set up in the light <laughs> of all the stuff that was happening. Um, it's something that we're going to investigate. That's so cool. That is so cool. So, just circling back, sorry. Oh, sorry, I went on a tangent. No, no, it's fine, all. we do it often. Uh, <laughs> I've listened to, I've been sat editing entire podcasts <laughs> and we'll have started something and next thing I know we're talking about something entirely different <laughs> um, and we've not finished the conversation. Sorry, listeners. Um, <laughs> so, just circling back, was it a well-kept secret that Flora and Louisa were queer women that were together in a relationship or... 
So here's the interesting thing. Go on. We don't know. Right. Because, so there's lots of lines of thoughts on this. So were things not written down because they knew they needed to protect themselves? Now, we're, we're in the time frame of Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, and are things not written down because that's proof? But we have a whole different story here because it's women, it's not men. Um, and that was treated very differently. Or not treated because people didn't believe that that was could possibly be a thing. Um, <laughs> so there's there's there are, however, and again this comes back to having to prove it. Mm. So that thing about they also lived in the upper enchilons of our society as well. So yeah. they were from very well established family um, who can live very different lives than your working class people at the time and can do a lot more things freer. So there's a headset that they could well have lived a lot more free, freely than we do now. Um, And there was a whole community there. Now there's a whole other line of investigation that I'm just bursting with at the minute and I can't quite get to it, but I'm getting there. There's stuff coming in the next couple of months. Just about the and why I never thought about this, I don't know. How queer the suffragettes were. Of course they bloomin' were. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> of course they were queer. So there's all, there are all these stories about Christina and um, Sylvia Plank, uh, Pankhurst, do you know? And like, I've held letters that they've written to Flora. Do you know? And like, there is all of this stuff. And I've heard le- held letters that Louisa has sent home to her brother and her mum and stuff and talking about Flora but not in a lot of detail one thing that she does say is that because I mean that I don't know if it's the internalised bit that's sort of the opposite of what we've just been talking about where I felt like I needed it proved Mm -hmm. do you know and that validation of our queer ancestors do you know and Mm -hmm. in the same way because we still have those heteronormative plug-ins that we have to tap in every now and again Mm -hmm. Um, but like so, when I was sitting and like delving into the archives, it, I was looking for those traces of things because I think I knew I was going to have to prove it. I was going to be asked, and yeah. I wanted to stand on absolute solid ground with that, just so that I could challenge people. So there is a bit where she talks about the fact that they don't cope very well being apart because they had two hospitals in France at the time, and one was in Paris and one was in in Vimero, um, and they were missing each other. Then you have, it's. No, it's gone back. It was here. Louise as well. So Flora died first. Um, and in that will, there's talk about what needs to happen with the, the portraits that are currently in the in the, the museum. But there is a um, line that says that their Louisa and Flora's matching diamond rings <laughs> have to be left to Flora's nieces in love. Mm. So that is like, no, to Louisa's her nieces in love. So it was Flora's nieces. They got their matching diamond rings. So there's there's those things that's like, hmm, yeah. And then you have their gravestone. At the bottom of which says, we have been gloriously happy. You know, and it's like, how many more things do we need that shows that? Yeah. Do you know, like there are there are other bits and pieces, and I think there's still more to be unearthed. None of us have, have done that yet. Like, here's the thing: if Flora was in a relationship with a man, and it was the same sort of thing, like let's say it was just as scarce in details, if she was with a man, and you heard they had matching diamond rings and and 
and all all the proof that was there, you go, oh yeah, they were a couple. They might have not been married, which again would have been sh- shunned on at the time. But you would say, okay, they were a couple. Yep. That mm. would just be yep. undeniable. Exactly that. But because it's it's Flora and Louisa, it's just sort of like totally. Just people people just don't want to give it that same sort of yep. satisfaction. Totally, yeah. and they want to query it. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and that's the whole point about us now starting to queer the archive. Do you know? I think that's a that's a really interesting thing, and you know, obviously, you're doing miles of work on that very subject, um, and I, I just think it's such an important line of work that needs to be done. Mm. Being able to tell queer stories, but not only to do that, but to engender a new way of looking at history, yes, a new way of looking at the stories of people's lives and the times you know that they that they lived in, and not assuming everything from a, a heteronormative point yeah. of view. You know, and, and also not feeling the need to qualify beyond an inch of doubt yeah. um, that something is actually queer. I, I, I think that's a really important piece of work. Yeah. Um, and th- th- there's something in there about, I always come back to it being about validation. And in some way, we have to validate our existence. Yeah. Because we, for so long, we have been those second class citizens, those underdogs, those lesser beings. Do you know? And it's like, that's not how it is no more. Do you know, and, and part and parcel of this is is liberating everybody's thought processes from that because the more that we start to appear in museums, the more that we start to appear in galleries and things are owned and, and that visibility and that representation grows and in the areas that it hasn't, then that is empowering, do you know, in lots of ways. And it rectifies a lot of the wrongs, mm-hmm. do you yeah. know, and it's about also it's about protecting it for the future and not only protecting ourselves, like but also like protecting our history and it it feels really important right now to do that because there has been such over the last sort of two three decades particularly there have been so many things that have changed mm-hmm. that needs protected because there's lessons in that like it's what we, i've always said when i did hidden histories it's about learning from the past for our now to inform our future yeah. and a lot of that is about activism like that's about learning lessons so that the younger generation know how to hold on to like the, the history that they have so they have a greater sense of belonging and a greater sense of pride of place and and that feeling a lot more of a right and an empowerment around about who they are and existing and occupying spaces that actually yeah our queer ancestors did walk down that high street mm-hmm. yeah the pink panther was hanging out in that pub that used to be there do you know what i mean it's like all of these stories, seeing that our ancestors existed in these places and spaces that we walk by every day, yeah. is so important. Speaking of that, you do you do a, a queer heritage walking trail in Dumfries. Oh yes, I do. So oh, nice segue, yeah. Ru. <laughs> We've been doing this for a while. <laughs> yeah, you totally have. We're all worn in like an old man. <laughs> but um, no, I tell think us. Think of worse t- things to be worn in. But yeah, well, so can I. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the trail, though. Uh, so the walking tour literally came out of just something for exactly what I said um, during Pride. Oh, what was Pride two years ago? Twenty-one. Two. Two. 22 um and because i'd started doing the sort of story trails work and i had been sort of starting to unpack some stories around town i was like oh hey here's something a bit novel that we could add to the pride program so i just went out of the way and because because my history of being involved in sort of queer activism locally and setting up the the services locally i kind of knew where a lot of the stories had unpacked from 
and because I've I've had the sort of the privilege of being in the centre of a lot of those services, I've I've been trusted with a lot of stories, and I've been privy to a lot of stories, obviously in confidence, um, of things that have happened in different places and spaces around the town, and um, I kind of felt like some of that needed to be honoured and there was one person in particular whose story we had started to collect but unfortunately died and it was just, it would have been just the most powerful piece um, and I always felt I needed to honour that um, and that felt like one way that I could tell a bit of his story was starting to bring a little bit of that out so it literally is a walking tour around Dumfries Town Centre, takes an hour um, and I'll take you to some of the pivotal places and that are related to some of the the big... The, the, yeah, the, the, it is a proper hidden history. Like So we'll go to the police station, obviously, to talk about some of the, the obvious stories that will have occurred there yeah. um, and some of the stuff that's, that's obviously written in the archive and the police files and all the rest of it. Um, and then we come down to the fountain and the Theatre Royal and down to what used to be the um, the Steel Council of Voluntary Services at the back of um, Marks and Spencers, um, which was where the gay and lesbian line switchboard used to operate from the 70s, <laughs> which was a Thursday evening. Um, and that was quite... That, that was quite impactful for me when I was growing up because I knew there was a lifeline. There's no way in hell I was going to bloody use it. Because, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I might get found out. But it was there and there was volunteers there every Thursday night doing that. So, like, absolutely about paying homage to the people whose... the giants whose shoulders we stand on. And then, like, the cruising grounds. We'll go visit some <laughs> of the cruising grounds. <laughs> Classic, but necessary. But this is what I was saying to Ruri, right? So, I know next to nothing about queer history in Dumfries and Galloway. The only thing I ever knew, and it was the only thing I ever knew growing up, was if you were at Castle Dykes, you knew you could nip into the toilet for a yep. blowy. Like, yep. that's all I knew. Yep. And that, and with reflection, as an adult, that's quite sad that it's like the only thing that yes. I was ever made aware of. Yep. Um, so it's really amazing that like we have someone like yourself walking around... And telling these stories and passing these stories down because if there's no one telling these stories, they will get lost. Totally. On that note, yeah. is there a story that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Just a little tidbit oh, wow. <laughs> that stands out to you. It, it can be as serious, as impactful, or as funny as you 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 want it to be. But go on, give us give us a slice. Tell us a story. <laughs> Uh, Let me get my pajamas. Oh, hold on, I'll get my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm like sifting through the what ones can I repeat? You can repeat any. You can repeat any. I know, but like it, lots of times in my life I've been put under, like I have lots of confidences, like confidentiality things, okay. clauses that I live with. But, um, oh God, do you know? Oh, right, okay. Pink Panther. Ooh. So... One of the one of the pubs that used to exist, it was a hotel, used to exist um, somewhere in Dumfries Town Centre. Now, this is sort of 50s, 60s. Um, who knew that there was different parts of different bars in Dumfries, a little bit like it still is, that was very queer-friendly. You'd be at the end of the bar in one of these hotel pubs, and that was, that was where the queer spaces were. And this was totally normalised. There was a queer barman... 
um, all of this stuff. So the person that was telling me this story had uh, it was quite a tragic story under like behind that. But he literally he was in and out of Dumfries a lot, and he was back at one point, and he frequented these spaces, obviously. And while he was there, he was very conscious that there was this character that used to float about who was um, very camp, very high camp, and a bit of a dandy, and <laughs> loved to be seriously flamboyant because it attracted women. Uh-huh. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Yes. So he became known as the Pink Panther, and the person that was telling me this story was like, he literally just had, he just floated about with all these women after him, our classic fag hag scenario. Um, and he, 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 this just went on forever. But this guy at one point decided, nah, no, this isn't a real thing. So decided on Glasgow Street one night that he was going to proposition him. And uh, needless to say, it turns out that the whole story comes out. He's not queer. His <laughs> accent changes and all the rest of it. And he literally has just developed this character as the Pink Panther because he was getting tons of women in his vicinity that he was then in a position where they, back then there, were, <laughs> there was lots of stuff that I've experienced in my lifetime. The women were going, but I could show you a good time. I could, I could turn you straight. Oh, gosh. So it had turned into this whole really, yeah, no. I, I know. The OG queer bear. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely. That's wild. Probably not a queer bear then, is he? Is oh, well, no. I, what do you call that? What Hetri- would you call that? I know. I know, it's a bit backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a machine. It, mm. Oh. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. No. <laughs> loved about that was just was the more of the stuff about I mean it like it's just a classic story but like the fact that he when he was telling me these stories it was just normal in the same way that it used to be normal for me when I was growing up in the live or the heart or the joker or whatever these were safe spaces they were integrated safe spaces do mm-hmm. you know um and that was the case in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. it's an interesting it's interesting to get that perspective and to, to hear those narratives because, again, I think one of the difficulties that we face, like, in our space and time is when you reflect on queer history, it is negative. Mm-hmm. We, we only hear negative mm-hmm. stories. And that's not to say that those things obviously didn't happen and that yep. wasn't the reality for people at those t- that time. But there were really interesting stories of really positive allyship, of yep. excellent integration, of people living really authentic, happy lives. And we don't hear those stories yes. because they're not recounted. So we have this skewed perception where we, we hear a yep. story like that and we're like, no way. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> exactly. <didn't happen. laughs> totally. Do you know, I had, last week I had quite, spent quite a few hours having this very conversation because it like, so we're in the middle of setting up DNG's LGBTQ plus archive. And that has a huge amount of complexities involved in it for a whole host of organizations, like for reasons and, and the sort of organizations that are involved in it, we're having to navigate quite a lot of um, interest in territory. And one of those things that we need to prepare ourselves for, like is the, the trauma informed supportive care it's not just about the care of the stuff that we're coming that's coming in the materials that's coming into the archive but the care of the people the care of the stories and how that's then entrusted for future reference um but the other part of that is to ensure it's not just all the trauma stuff because it is only a part of our existence 
And it's a really interesting thing because we've been spending a lot of time talking about this in the context of people who don't understand our culture. And it, I, find, I find it really weird to even say our culture because I've never seen it like that because I've been so in, in, sort of integrated into Dunhamer life. I've never really seen it as a sort of separate thing, but it absolutely is. Um, it's got a different language base. It's got a different set of experiences and boundaries and all sorts of things that are very different from the heteronormative world. And one of the things that kept coming up was like, yeah, I need just to be prepared. Like we need to think about how we care for people and the trauma and all the rest of it. So we kind of focused on that because I was preparing that territory, if you like. But the other part of it was, I don't like, that's only one bit of it because the other part of our life is like, is all the fun, is all the, club scene, the music, the, the vibrancy, and all the absolutely incredibly hilarious stories that totally needs represented, you know? And it's like, it, and it, we can't tell one without the other yeah. because it's so, it's so integrated, you know? And I think there's, there's a whole um, raft of stuff here that I'm, I'm really intrigued around about how we do the oral histories part of it. Because could, you could do it in the kind of traditional institutionalised oral history gathering thing where you're not as you're not saying anything you're just prompting the thing or we could do it as a set of conversations and like a queer human library kind of scenario which will bring out the vibrancy a lot more yeah. so there's like a queer archive kind of needs to almost represent the community that it's representing it's not just a dusty old archive like other things are approached um but there's there's a huge huge part of it that needs to be utterly vibrant and really engaging. It needs to be multi-sensory. It needs to have a whole life to it. So that's like the archive has a variety of different strands and one of them is sort of the, the outreach and the events that are about bringing that archive to life. And that's where I'm, I'm hoping that we're getting to relay all the madness, all the campness, all the, uh, the fun and the, the daftness that situations that we find ourselves in provoke really you know yeah absolutely um well this has been fascinating thus far believe it or not we are 37 minutes in Woof. that goes quick um we'll take a quick breather and when we come back i'd love to hear about your experiences Oof. as a queer person in dumfries so i think we'll come back to that in just a moment Welcome back to Speaking Queerly. We are still here with the wonderful DJ McDowell, who has done so much amazing work with looking at Flora Murray and, and digging through um, Dumfries' archives and, and, and finding out just how queer our wee county has been over the years. <laughs> it turns out very queer. Very queer. Um, but one thing I, I do want to talk to you about, DJ, is... So you've... You, you've been a big part of, of of pride here in Dumfries and 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 using your voice in such a powerful way and and being an activist. Do you remember when you first sort of went, "Huh, I need to, <laughs> I need to do something here." Do yeah. you remember that? What yeah. was going through your head? Vividly remember that. Um, because I hadn't had a good experience growing up in Dumfries. Um, I also was very much like, I don't want anybody else having to go through what I've gone through and not have the lines of support or the lines of connectivity um, that 
I felt that I'd been deprived of. Uh, so I remember getting to a point of going, I need to do that then. I need to set a service up or something that allows us to do that. And I got involved in youth work and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I was working at the Youth Inquiry. I started volunteering, then started working at the Youth Inquiry Service. Within six months, I was the, the project coordinator. But, and this was sort of 95. Um, Section 28 is alive and kicking. Mm-hmm. The Youth Inquiry Service at that point was sitting under the education department. So it meant that we were absolutely in the line of fire for everything that was Section 28 was about or Section 2A was about. Um, and because I was very visible in the Youth Inquiry Service and dotting round about town, what I found was that there was quite a lot of queer young folk were gravitating to that space. It was a drop-in youth space, but they saw me... I hadn't even realised this at the time. And they told me later, they saw me as being a, an out queer queer person that they thought, oh, we can be have a, a safe space there with them. Um, and that sort of all happened by default. Now, before I knew it, there was a group. Um, and that group were wanting to activate. They were they were in a space, they were want to galvanise, they were want to do some stuff. So I was totally like, well, that's what, exactly why I'm here, that's what I want to do. And we started doing it. Needless to say, there was some stuff started to happen because of the position that I was in, the job that I was in, um, and I wasn't allowed to be doing this. So there was a variety of incarnations of the group that was closed, shut down, went underground, popped back up. Shut down, went underground, popped back up. And we found different ways to migrate through the grey areas that sit within the law. Um, the horrendous part of this, so that was me starting to go, yep, this is us rectifying, this is finally a safe space that I would have wanted when I was younger. Um, and it doesn't matter, we're all in this together, we're going to get through, we're going to find a space that we can, we can do this. And they were together. However, the second time that that group was shut, Three of those young people within a space of six months killed, took their own lives. And that was it for me, because I was just utterly hellbent at that point. I was like, it doesn't matter. They can sack me. They can do whatever I want. This group is happening regardless. So there was a whole host of things that we did um, and found ways of, of navigating so that those young folk could get their voice heard. Um, and... Interestingly, we were inspected because we were in education. We got a sort of inspection. Her Majesty's Inspector of Education, HMIE, came in and inspected the work that we'd been doing. And rather than walking away and going, oh, you can't be doing that, they walked away and gave the work an example of good practice. That then meant the council couldn't touch us. (laughs) 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 Because the work was exemplary. And what it meant was that they needed to be, the recommendations was that they needed to be supporting that work. So that then developed into what we now know as Phoenix, which is still running 20 odd years later. Um, And that then brought LGBT Youth Scotland in to work in partnership and all of that flourished. We wrote from that, we were like, we need to know where other safe spaces are. Out of that group, we had a like a Tuesday night group every week um, and a variety of other issue-based groups from that group and some incredible volunteers. Shout out to them all if they're listening. Um, I hope everybody's well. And we then were like, oh, wouldn't it be good if you know where else you could feel safe? And we created the LGBT charter mark that then went national. It's still running 
today, do you know? And it is the basis for which people go through all the charter mark training and all the schools and the police and everybody has to have a um, proof that they are being inclusive and not just, it's not just a nice rainbow sticker and they have to work for it. But that started in the Venal and Dumfries, do you know? Um, so it's huge impact. Um, and then there was a whole host of things spun off of that. Like we had like a schools out conference, it was the first time that there had been um, work done round about LGBTQ young folks' experiences in the school system. And sort of tail end of Section 28 was about their voices finally being heard. And we had some incredible allies within the education department at that point who um, made sure that that was heard. It became a, a document, that uh, a report that was infiltrated in loads of different places across, across Scotland and really started to inform how things were changing for, for young folk within the education system on the back of Section 2A going out. Um, so there was all of that stuff going on. I mean, there was just like huge amount of things that was happening in a work context. At the same time, we're obviously actively campaigning. We were making sure that our young folk were being sent up to Prides in Glasgow and Edinburgh so they could experience that because we didn't have that here. Oh, hell! It's time for us to have a Dumfries Pride. 2008, <laughs> bad a bang, but we were always going to do it our way because, like, the cities are the cities. Um, and we made sure it was it was very colloquial. It was very, um, we we're going to be sitting on hay bales and <laughs> it was in Park Farm and it felt like just a, a, a fate type thing. But at that fate, we had a big flatbed truck with Rosala singing I'm free on the do you know what I mean on the stage and like just all this stuff happening and um shout out to Ian Campbell who at the time was still in the fire service. It's one of my favourite moments. Apart from the fact that I was running a Madonna versus Kylie um DJ Athon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was Madonna's fiftieth birthday that day. Um so <laughs> Ian Campbell didn't tell the rest of the guys on the shift where he was going. He just told them that they were going for an outing in the back of the van. And uh, they turned up in the fire engine. Much to all the gay men's absolute delight as a bunch <laughs> of firemen arrived in the middle of Pride. It was quite a spectacular moment. Um, so it was stuff like that that we were like, right, we're going to push it. And um, Les had already been running... Uh, Sweaty Betty's, so there was like a little club night, and then that club night evolved into mixed bag, and then a sticky, and like there had been a whole history of sort of club nights that were known and lesser known. Um, so yeah, God, I don't know, Les and I must have DJed mixed bag every Friday night at the, the last Friday of the month for about six years or something. It was relentless, but there was all that kind of stuff just to make sure that there was a uh, space that was a bit different, and all the stuff and like when. Uh, so we were pushing for the rights to adopt <laughs> living proof right here sitting beside <laughs> me um, we were campaigning on that front we were campaigning for equal marriage you know and, and to the, the sort of the, the, like the other part of it was the adult services grew out of the fact that we kept getting regular phone calls in the yes saying you're doing all this for the young folk what about us Young folk get everything. What about us? And then after some relentless amounts, and unfortunately another suicide later, it was like, oh, we really have to do this. So again, it's from a place of activism. It's like we have to, and we forced that to happen. Um, and that's now DNG LGBT plus that's been running for however many decades. Equal marriage stuff like the the, the poster boys in the front of that were were two of our local volunteers that led the campaign nationally. You know, just so many incredible changes happening relatively short period of time, do you know? 
but it never stops. It never stops. Pride is a protest. It sure is. It sure is. And I think we've got to remember, like, just that there were all of these incredible safe spaces that were provided. Um, it's, it's interesting to me because obviously we're I'm I'm such a big part of you know your steamins and and, and all mm. the sort of like local events that happen here, but never did I realize that you know mixed bag which I'd never heard of until recently, <laughs> was a weekly thing. Uh, monthly. monthly. Monthly, sorry. Last, every fri- fr- last Friday of the month. Last Friday of the month. But even still, like, it's so amazing to know that, like, before Divine and I could get our fingers in that pie, like, it was happening before and there were safe spaces, which is absolutely incredible. What do you think the lasting impact will be on the activism that you have done here in Dumfries and Galloway? My last bit? Is that because I'm getting really old, Joe? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> but you're just, you're taking my words and you're twisting them. Like, yep, I a horrible, horrible bitch. Um, it's my privilege. <laughs> I thought these lesbians weren't meant to be catty. Um, but no, no. Because you've done so much. Yeah. You have done so much. I mean, I can remember being at Oasis and walking in for the first time and there's a queer person stood right in front of me and I'm like, wait. Hang <laughs> <laughs> the fuck on. Yeah. What the fuck's happening? Like, I can remember that and I can yeah. distinctly remember seeing you for the first time. An out and proud queer person just fucking doing your shit, man. Aye, but that didn't come easy. Uh, this is some of the stuff that's interesting because we've been doing the archive chat that's been coming up. I didn't deliberately go out of my way to do that. I had to do that to survive. I had to stand up because nobody else was standing up for me while I was walking up and down Dumfries High Street being spat on, kicked, shouted at, heckled, followed, everything. Do you know, everything at a time that we didn't have any rights, that the police weren't looking after us or anything mm. like that. All the stuff that would happen on a regular basis, it was predictable. Do you know, like, all of that. Nobody else was there with me to stop that. I had to learn to do that. So you then, you de- I was a very shy, demure person at school, believe it or not. Do you know what I mean? But I had to learn to defend myself. I had to learn to stand up for myself. The more that I did that, the more I then realised I needed to step up for other people that couldn't do that. And that just developed into loads of different spheres. And I don't, like I remember walking into Superdrug when it was just up where Bob and Bert's is now. And somebody working behind the counter that I didn't know said to me, thank you. And I was like, what? Hmm. I didn't get my tampax or whatever. I was like, and they were like, thank you for just being you and being visible. Do you know? And I was like that, what? It's like, you were the only person that I knew that was gay, but you were just wandering about holding your girlfriend's hand. Mm. I didn't know that that was going to have an impact. Do you know, I was just doing and making my presence felt because I knew that that was the right thing to do at the time. Um, For me. It just, it's something that later on you start to go, oh shit, right, okay, that had an impact. Um, And it, like, it, it is that thing that's like, you just, we've got to a point now that I think, and I will circle back, I'm, I'm going with it, um, <laughs> that my bit now is going to be the LGBTQ archive. I think that is it genuinely probably as my parting gift. For as much as I'll, I'll still be about just shouting me and do pride stuff or whatever's needed, that's it's just how it is. 
the archive feels like one of the most important things that I could I could do because I, I have that lived experience. I have seen it over quite a few years and there's that current bit, but there's also the recovery of the old and that's what I'm really excited about, the stuff that I did with Flora. Finding other ones. I know there's other ones there. I've been given some stuff that I will come back and talk to you about in a couple of months when I'm allowed to talk about it. So exciting. But it is spectacular, more spectacular stuff. Um, but there is that. I think the archive is, it's a... It's an activism tool. It's about our community collecting our histories for ourselves and not by anybody else um, so that that is remembered, so the struggle is remembered, so that we know how to protect ourselves in the future and how to galvanise and that intergenerational bit of it, the way that I'm kind of developing it is that it's an intergenerational thing. So it's the younger ones who are all geeked up and are able to do all the tech stuff and bring it to life and just what you guys are doing every week. Um, then those stories are being heard firsthand and those relationships are being built. It's not just like some researcher interviewing somebody and they're never going to see them again. This is community building for me, like it always has been. And this is a way to do this that I think is so fundamentally important. We're going to do community collecting, we'll do community cataloguing, community archiving, but most of all community building through that. And that feels like one of the most important things we can do just to go hey you want your proof here it bloody is we've always been here and this is what we have to put up with because mm. i think that's the bit that i want to come out is like but there's also the uh, some phenomenal back to what you said earlier about the other quality things that are in there and the fun things and the the beautiful things one of the first things that we're going to do is look at some of Dumfries's diaspora and there's some phenomenal gays that have gone off and done some absolutely amazing things and part of that is we're going to hopefully bring them back to do some of those amazing things here um, hopefully as part of Pride either this year or next year but we want, that's what I mean about making the archive alive experiential for other people and, and make us really proud yeah. of who we are, who we have been and who we will always fucking be yeah. so with the archive just starting out it's an incredibly exciting time what do you need for it to be able to be run successfully? A lot of care. Um, and that care needs to come from the community itself, not other people getting um, involved in it. It needs to be by the community, for us, by us. So I am getting to the point that we're going to be asking for volunteers to come along, people that will be interested in collecting, cataloguing and, and sharing. Um, so... Any geeks out there that are within the community that want to come and, and help us catalogue and help us um, record oral histories or um, get involved in sort of some event planning and stuff about how we shared those stories, we would love to hear from you because we don't want to take anything right now until we have a volunteer base that can actually care for that those materials. Um, so, yes, some volunteers would be amazing, please. Amazing. Uh, DJ, where can people find you if they want to get in touch and they want to volunteer on the project? Um, if you drop me a little email, it's dj at blether, B-L-E-T-H-E-R dot Scott. DJ at blether dot Scott. Perfect. Amazing. Well, I think we're going to wrap this up. It has been absolutely amazing having you in. Finally. I know. Oh, thank you for <laughs> your patience. I'm too busy bloody running about all these bloody queers. <laughs> <laughs> Ghosts of queers, I should say. Ghosts of queers. Uh, Listen. Boo. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it. An absolute pleasure as always. And you guys are a 
constant permanent archive of where we're at. So thank you for doing the work. If you're listening in 50 years, jobby. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, big massive thank you to DJ for coming in and speaking to us. A massive thank you to the Stove Network for letting us use their space and all of their lovely equipment. A wonderful thank you to Ruri Finsner. You're so welcome. And thanks to you listening at home. We will be back next week for some more queer excellence because you deserve it and so do we. So, my name has been Madam Jo Mama and please tell your cat I said psst.